My biggest radical dream is that we can end new HIV diagnoses in the United States, which would help us effectively end our HIV epidemic. But what that specifically means to me is that we are living in a world where everyone has the resources and support that they need to take care of their health in the fullest sense, and that they also have the safety and stability in all other areas of their life in order to give them more freedom over their health priorities and decisions. Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dreaming radically is a necessity if we are to reach a world of liberation for all marginalized peoples. Imagining the world we want to see and then fighting like hell to go and get it. Dream radically is a hope, a strategy, a goal of altering the status quo in our quest for social transformation. Join us on this journey. Let's dream. Hey y'all, it's Aurelius. I'll be a host on today's podcast. Sarah Raines is studying community health and women's and gender studies at the University of Oklahoma. She is a sexual health peer educator and is passionate about HIV prevention, history, and advocacy. Sarah plans to pursue a master's in public health and hopes to one day help Oklahoma work towards ending its HIV epidemic. So Sarah, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first question um, that we ask all of our guests is, what is your radical dream? So I would love to hear what your radical dream is. My biggest radical dream is that we can end new HIV diagnoses in the United States, which would help us effectively end our HIV epidemic. But what that specifically means um, to me um, is that we are living in a world where everyone has the resources and support that they need to take care of their health in the fullest sense, and that they also have the safety and stability in all other areas of their life in order to give them more freedom over their health priorities and decisions. I desperately want to see a world that is built to enable not just people surviving, but thriving. So Sarah, I wanted to have you on for this season of the podcast because I've learned so much from you in relation to, to sexual health and reproductive justice and the HIV epidemic, especially. And so that's what I really want to talk about today, right, is about sex and sexual health and drug use, as well as the HIV epidemic. And so I guess, you know, what I first want to ask you is, is why are people so afraid to like talk about these things and to talk about like sex and sexual health? And at what point did you see like sex and sexual health as like a crux for, for social transformation? I think there are lots of reasons why people are afraid or ashamed or hesitant to talk about sex. And especially with young people, and I think it's important that we start talking about sex when we are really little so that we can build that foundation to have better relationships um, and healthier lives, you know, for the rest of our life. It has to start young. Um, but we we really don't like um, talking, especially to little kids, about things that are related to sex in any way, which you think of it as like kind of ridiculous because sex is literally everywhere. Sexual imagery is everywhere. You know, advertising, movies, songs, books, TV shows, in the freaking magazine covers, in the checkout line at the grocery store, it's literally everywhere. And we, for some reason, decided that the best way to deal with that is pretending that it's not. We 
pretend that it isn't there and that little kids can't see it and that hiding it from them is the best way to handle that. And it's definitely not. <laughs> um, you know, we have this idea that like children and younger teenagers, um, that they're like these pure non-sexual beings that need to be shielded from sex and that sex is like damaging or corrupting to them which is not true, right? It, it can be hard to see them this way, but even our children are sexual beings, right? We're born that way and we grow into that and we develop into our sexuality the older that we get. But instead of being real with that, we want to lie to children. We make up weird names for their genitals instead of telling them what they're really called. And um, when they ask where they come from, we make up weird lies about how, you know, the stork dropped you off on the front porch or whatever, um, because we think that that is better for them or that's easier for them to understand or that's more appropriate. But there are ways to start talking to young people about sex in, in ways that are more appropriate for their age without lying. Because when we start lying, it's hard for us to stop. And that's kind of how we've ended up with like this public school sex ed that is not really focused on teaching young people about their bodies or their relationships, but is more focused on scaring them away from sex and stigmatizing it to the point where young people feel dirty or shameful or gross or weird for even being curious about it. Then all of a sudden we have these young adults who don't know a whole lot about how their body works or how other bodies work, who believe all this information, who've internalized harmful messaging about relationships and other people, and we turn them loose to just like figure it out themselves. Um, and that sets us up for failure. I, I really think that it does. Because the truth is that young people are having sex, whether we want them to or not, whether we're lying to them about it or not, it is happening. I think our most recent figure uh, suggests that 60% of teenagers have, have had sex by the time they graduate from high school. And so that means that we need to be talking to them and giving them the best tools that they need to make informed decisions and make the decisions that are healthiest for them and their bodies. Right. But instead, we let them go off into the world believing misinformation about how condoms don't really prevent STIs or you can prevent pregnancy by having sex in a pool because water washes away sperm like they are left to make all these weird connections that end up not really being true because we refuse to provide them with the information that they need. When I learned what comprehensive sex ed was, I definitely made the connection that real sex ed can be a force for cultural change because it can not only change the way that we view our bodies, but the way that we build relationships with each other. And so what I mean by comprehensive sex ed is not just talking about like STIs and birth control. And that's like what people tend to think of when they think about sex ed. But comprehensive sex ed instead views sexuality as an expansive, holistic topic that reaches into lots of different parts of our lives. And again, is something that follows us from birth all the way until death. So this means starting to talk to young children, not about like explicitly having sex, but more so starting at a young age and, and letting children know like that they are the boss of their own body. And that if somebody is touching them in a way that they don't like, whether that's another child or an adult, that they have the right to say no, and that they have the right for that no to be respected. And that also that if other people are telling them no, that they have to listen to that no and take it seriously. And not only does this set kids up to have the tools and the language they need if they are being taken advantage of, which is something that we hope never happens to children, but it also sets them up for later down the line, building better definitions and understandings of 
bodily autonomy, of consent, and helping us prevent sexual violence in the future. Um, so by starting with bigger concepts and building on them as we get older, um, we really can help not only change how we view sex, but how we treat each other, how we understand concepts like gender and sexual orientation, how we view people who have different bodies and genders than we do, and, and how we take care of ourselves. So yeah, I know that comprehensive sex ed is a sexual violence prevention tool. It can combat homophobia and sexism. Um, and that's why I know that it is a valuable tool in creating a better and more just world. Waxton poetic here on the first, <laughs> on the first question. Got into like all of the rest of my questions. Um, <laughs> and I think like that's the reason that sex has become like such a, a taboo topic, right? And like that comprehensive sex ed, like especially like in the state legislature here in Oklahoma, right? why legislators are so opposed to it is both because like they themselves have been taught like certain lessons throughout their lives right it's not as though like just one day they woke up and were like sex is bad right but like they more than likely like grew up in the same world where it was yeah like some swoon like dropped down and dropped you off at your parents doorstep right that's hilarious i think that messaging like i never thought about that as no like you're here because of sex right so people are so opposed to it because it is like comprehensive sex ed is not only about like STIs, like you were saying, but it's also about, you know, talking about consent and bodily autonomy and it's about like sexual violence prevention, but also about like other sexualities, right? And like, if it's good, right? If you have like a good curriculum around it, that it is like combating heteronormativity and things of that nature. And especially in a state like Oklahoma, like that is the biggest threat because we conflate being gay with pedophilia, right? Um, and like that, this comprehensive sex ed is like teaching young people to, I don't know, what the narrative is to like be gay or something of that nature, right? Talk a bit about like people who push back against this or like opponents of comprehensive sex ed and what it's really rooted in. From what I have seen, a lot of pushback, particularly from parents or people who have different um, religious values, um, they don't want sex being taught in schools because they feel like that kind of thing encourages young people to have sex which is, I don't know how that connection gets made. Um, just knowing about something does not mean that automatically everyone's going to want to start doing it. And we actually know that from research in places that have good, comprehensive um, sex ed curriculums is that when young people have the full picture, when they have all of the information, when they are able to weigh out the risks and the benefits, they actually delay onset of sexual activity because they have the tools to understand their own values. They have the tools to um, set boundaries and enforce boundaries. And because their peers know how to respect and listen to those boundaries. And um, so they end up waiting until they are ready or until it is in line with their personal values to have sex when they have all those tools and when they are prepared. So while a lot of legislators or parents think that telling kids about sex will make them have sex, we actually know um, that the opposite of that is true. So moving topics a bit, because you talked about in your intro, right, the, this HIV epidemic, if you could like paint the picture, and I know it's not like a, a two minute TED talk, right? But if you could, as best you can, like paint the picture for us around the ongoing HIV epidemic, who is hitting the worst and why so few people are talking about it as not a historical phenomena, but something that is that is currently affecting us. When I started getting into sexual health information um, and education, I would find like bits and pieces about HIV, you know, we've got HIV prevention and, and condoms can prevent against HIV and other STIs and things like that. 
Um, and at the same time, I knew that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we had like this really, really big, bad epidemic where lots of people were sick and lots of people were dying. But it's harder to find out how what was happening in the 80s and 90s, what happened after that, and how it changed over time to get where we are now. And so after listening to people who are living with HIV and listening to people who are working in HIV prevention and treatment, I was able to get a fuller understanding of the fact that the HIV epidemic never ended. It didn't stop or go away. Sure, it, it slowed down um, when we got effective treatment in 1996, and, and then it kind of fell out of media favor because it felt less urgent and it felt less like something that everybody needed to be paying attention to because less people were getting sick and dying. But it definitely is still an epidemic today. Just because we are not no longer paying as much attention to it doesn't mean that that changed. Around 1.2 million people are currently living with HIV in the United States alone. And around 38,000 people are newly diagnosed with HIV every year. And after we got effective treatment in 1996, we started seeing the number of people who got HIV every year steadily declining. Um, until around 2012 and 2013, that number plateaued. And that at first didn't make any sense to me because around that time is also when we got way more effective prevention tools. Um, we had been learning so much more about how HIV works and how to prevent it. So I was confused about why we, we stopped seeing that decline. But that 38,000 number has been pretty consistent since then. And that's because just because something exists does not mean people can access it. So that means that populations that have been historically denied resources and that continue to be harmed by systems of oppression today, they are going to be more vulnerable to HIV. So for example, right now, the group of people that has the highest number of new diagnoses every year is Black men who have sex with men. And they also make up almost 40% of all men who have sex with men who get diagnosed with HIV. That is a, an extremely disproportionate number compared to um, how much of the overall population that they make up. And um, we also know that gay men in general make up the bulk of who um, is getting HIV today still, and that transgender people are also disproportionately impacted by HIV. And that is not because Black people or gay people or trans people don't care about their sexual health because they're being quote unquote reckless or irresponsible with their sexual health. But it is because the systems of oppression that shape their daily lives, that shape the kind of access to resources they have in all areas, not just healthcare, that shape the decision-making abilities that they have, those things together make them more vulnerable to contracting HIV. And another way that this can be explained, to paraphrase Dr. Celeste Watkins-Hayes, is that HIV is an epidemic of social inequality. She talks about how people are, are more likely to acquire HIV when they are already living in a context of social and economic vulnerability that is caused by racism, sexism, homophobia, poverty, um, and other oppressive forces. And this is a direct quote. She says that HIV finds society's pockets of vulnerability and exploits them. So as long as people are not having access to not only healthcare, but the ability to meet other basic needs in their life, they are going to be more vulnerable to HIV, HIV risk behaviors, not having the education that they need to be able to prevent HIV, to be able to figure out what their risk is and how to mitigate that risk. All those things work together to increase vulnerability against different populations. 
And I think that's one of the reasons why HIV is not a huge focus anymore. It's something that we're not really talking about anymore because the people who have wealth and power and resources can access prevention and treatment tools. But the people that are being hardest hit by today's epidemic are the people that our society has already deemed disposable and devalued. So it's easier for us to ignore them and the problems that are mostly impacting them because we already kind of don't care about them. You know, as you were talking, right, like, especially the people who are, are like disproportionately represented of, with having, right, or living with HIV, have all been described like, throughout history as like sexual deviants and like more prone to flare their bodies, right? And, uh, you know, I, I think specifically about like tropes with like stereotypes around Black men and like sex and like forcing themselves, right, on particularly like white women. And like them being unable to uh, hold themselves back and how that ties in with, with Black gay men as well, right? Um, and this idea of like that they're unable to hold themselves back because uh, they're primitive beings. They're, they're primitive creatures, right? They're subhuman. And thus, when we think about cavemen, for instance, right? That's who these people are. And like, so they're living with HIV or um, doing these type of things because like it's in their nature. And like we tell ourselves these type of stories I think so we can ignore it, you know, like what you were saying at the end, they're in those realities because of their own choices. And I think that's the harm of liberalism and like individualism that like people are in the realities that they're in just because of their own individual choices and not because of the larger structural vulnerabilities that you laid out. Right. So I think that piece on structural vulnerabilities and like sexual deviance is huge for people to, to understand. Talk about like the role of like pharmaceutical companies in providing care for people living with HIV. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Medication is necessary um, for people with HIV to keep their HIV in check and to keep themselves healthy. So the medication that we have today works really, really well at preventing HIV from being able to reproduce in people's bodies. And if it can't reproduce, it can attack their immune systems. That means their immune systems stay healthy and that they can live um, lives that are just as full and long and, and healthy as people who don't have HIV. So that being said, access to medication is, is really important. And pharmaceutical companies know that. And because of that, HIV treatment medications and HIV prevention medications are incredibly I might add, disgustingly expensive, which is just another barrier on top of all the things we've already talked about that prevent people from being able to take care of their health in the ways that they need to. And particularly with prevention medication right now, we have two prevention pills in the United States that work really well at preventing HIV, but one pharmaceutical company owns the right to them. Well, they had to release their patent to one of them this last fall which is one of the things that drove them to really market their second drug because the first drug it has one generic version that is hardly less expensive, unfortunately. And so they want to be able to keep making the money off of that. So their second drug has been marketed, not very truthfully, as being a much more safe drug to take as something that is going to be more effective. Um, when in reality, they have almost identical safety profiles. And the point here is, is this might be a little bitter, but profiting off of people who have no other options, right? While pharmaceutical companies are responsible for making the drugs that um, keep people alive and can keep people from contracting HIV in the first place, they're also responsible for 
keeping those drugs out of reach for people and making paying for those drugs a huge, huge roadblock in people's lives um, and something that is a lot harder than it needs to be. It's tough because we need them, but they definitely take advantage of people in the ways that they know that they can. So in the future, right, like what are policy changes or, or efforts that could be had to combat those things and to make those preventative tools and treatment medications widely accessible? Well, one thing that would be nice is if we could have a little bit more regulation on the, the on drug pricing, because like I said, they're incredibly expensive and they're a lot more expensive than they need to be, right? Of course, you know, companies need to turn some amount of profit to stay in business, but the profits that they're making off of these life-saving medications, as you'll see with lots of other health issues, is just uh, horrific to me. So more regulation on how drugs can be priced would be nice. Um, but also something that has been really prominent specifically with the prevention drugs for HIV is the fact that taxpayer dollars helped develop those drugs in the first place. And because of where the funding came from to create those drugs or to figure out that those drugs could be used for preventative purposes, the public technically has ownership of those drugs. And so this pharmaceutical company doesn't really have the right to be making so much money off of something that it co-owns with the public. And so there have been lawsuits in the past few years fighting for basically the government to take ownership back over these drugs because they paid for them. And that's one of the ways that we were able to get the patent for that drug released earlier last fall so that um, generics could start being made. When the public is helping fund the research and development of drugs, <laughs> um, they should be able to own those drugs as well. So no one pharmaceutical company should be able to have a monopoly over something that they didn't have all of the resources in making. So having the FDA enforce that would be very helpful. Shifting gears here again, what is harm reduction, which is a, a pretty new concept for me in, in the past couple of years, right? And why might the concept be so foreign to some? I learned about harm reduction through learning about HIV and following people who live with HIV and work in HIV care and really following people and reading the work of people who push the reality that HIV is rooted in systems and will continue to thrive while the system's in place helped guide me towards harm reduction and a lot of them believe in harm reduction and work in harm reduction as well. Harm reduction is a framework, and it's also a movement, kind of like how reproductive justice is a framework and a movement that is focused on making drug use, um, but also other stigmatized and criminalized things like sex and sex work less risky and more safe. Um, some people who have really helped me learn about harm reduction online are Garrett Ruscher, Dr. Sheila Vicaria, and Tracy Helton Mitchell. They have all really blown the doors off of how I understand drug use and things like that. Yeah, it's it's based in the idea that, you know, people who use drugs deserve to live. Surprising. Um, that they deserve to live with dignity and respect and that they know best what they need. And so the best way to help them is by listening to what they need and letting them lead the way. So the movement is, is focusing on the fact that, that nobody deserves to die from lack of access to resources. And so that means it can encompass small things like providing free condoms and free HIV testing and Narcan and um, sterile syringes. But it can also focus on much bigger things like universal housing and decriminalization work. 
and <laughs> a lot of people struggle with harm reduction, especially the, the smaller things like providing direct tools to people, because we have this knee-jerk reaction that drugs are bad. Drugs are bad and people should just stop using them. And if we're giving them clean works or education on safe use, then we're actually just enabling drug use. And that's something that I kind of touched on earlier is that giving people tools does not automatically make them do things, but people who are already using drugs or who are already going to use drugs, that gives them the tools to do so safely, to try things safely and to mitigate risk. So, you know, when people are like, well, why don't they just stop using drugs? And an answer that you'll find frequently in harm reduction is that people can't stop using drugs if they are dead. And the whole point is to help them use safely, to help prevent overdose deaths, and to take care of their health overall. If we're not doing that, if we're letting people die, then this problem isn't going to change. Um, overdoses aren't going to stop and nothing will be different. But the bigger answer to this <laughs> is that I kind of want to push back on those assumptions. Why are drugs bad? Why should people not use drugs? Why do we think those things? And I want to challenge people who are listening to question that as well. And some insight I will, I will provide, and it's not the full answer by any means, but one of those answers is because we arbitrarily decided to make some drugs super illegal and some drugs totally acceptable. And I will use alcohol to explain that, right? Alcohol is a drug. We're so used to it that we don't always see it like that, but it is a drug that we have normalized and we have institutionally regulated so that it is safe and accessible and that people have the resources to use it in a way that isn't going to hurt them. So, you know, I can go to Walmart, I can pick up wine off the shelf and I don't have to worry about who made it, where it came from, or if there's anything dangerous mixed into it that I'm not sure how to use because I know that it had to meet FDA safety standards and regulations to end up on the shelf in the first place. People who are using like cocaine, for example, they don't always have those same safety guarantees. So they have to go through extra steps of being able to find ways to test their drugs and um, to make sure nothing else is in them in order to use them in a similar, um, safer way. Similarly, I can look at the label on my bottle of wine and see, oh, this is 12%. Or whatever. And that helps me make an informed decision about how much to drink, when to stop drinking, how quickly I want to be drinking. All of those things help me drink alcohol more safely. But it's harder to do that with other things that have not been similarly regulated and labeled and things like that. So harm reduction is asking that we look at other drugs the same way that we look at alcohol or caffeine, which is also a drug that we have completely normalized. People use alcohol and other drugs for similar reasons, right? You might um, have a drink at the end of the day to relax, to deal with stress, to sleep better, to uh, deal with trauma, um, to deal with other things, to socialize, to have a good time. And um, people use other drugs for the exact same reasons, but one of these is legal and one of these is not. So of course, like with alcoholism and other drugs, people can have a relationship that starts off as one thing and then can maybe turn into something dependent, can maybe turn into something that is no longer benefiting to them, can turn into something that they decide they want to change or stop. And the thing is that seeking help for alcoholism is not going to land you in jail the same way that maybe seeking help for um, an opioid addiction might, especially if you've already been criminalized for that kind of thing in the past. And that's what is so frustrating about this to me is that we already know that making things illegal does not make it go away. It just makes it more dangerous. 
you know, we know this from abortion, right? We know that when we make things illegal, we push it underground and we make it harder for people to get help when they need it, if they need it. The same thing goes with abstinence-only approaches to education. We know it doesn't work for sex and it doesn't work for drug use either. You know, telling kids that drugs are bad and they're gonna kill you and you can't even experiment with them because you're just gonna die anyways, that's not helpful. And it's also not true. Just like I said earlier, giving people the full picture of the risks and the benefits, giving them the education they need to partake in something more safely, that is what's going to be better for health and decisions in the long run. We have resources for safer sex, we have resources for alcohol, but the only thing that we provide people who use other drugs is incarceration. And that is not helpful. Um, and that just disempowers people from changing relationships that they don't like or from getting on with their life the same way that people who drink one glass of wine at the end of the day can get on with their life too. We have all these fear-based hysterical narratives around drug use, um, that it's super addictive and super deadly and there's no safe way to do any drugs and it's going to immediately alter your brain chemistry and then you'll be addicted forever. And like that narrative is not working. It's not keeping people from using drugs. It's not engaging with the reality of drug use at all. And it has never been working, right? People have been using drugs since the beginning of time and that's not an inherently bad thing. And harm reduction is asking that we finally embrace this instead of avoiding it or throwing it away in prison so that we can start making everybody safer and healthier. Yeah, so, right, like, this piece on, on criminalization especially and, like, trying to address these things through incarceration or through criminalization uh, and is inherently, like, in and of itself, like, sinister and racist, right? Because of, we know, because of the structural vulnerabilities we talked about a bit earlier, like, the people who are oftentimes, right, like, more dependent on these things um, are disproportionately living in poverty, and disproportionately living in, in, in communities of color and rural communities, especially across the country. Um, and when we just throw, throw them in prison, one, there are many contradictions and many things that just make little sense about the prison industrial complex, but it's probably the biggest thing that like, it transcends logic. Like it just doesn't make sense to be like, this person is struggling with addiction for whatever substance, right? Throw them in a, in a jail cell and, and counting and, to think that suddenly they'll be okay or that they're gonna come out better for it is about as backwards uh, of logic as I can think of, right? And so we think about like the war on drugs and like the criminalization of like some drugs over other drugs. Um, you know, we think about particularly around like uh, weed legalization and decriminalization in recent years across the country and even in states in Oklahoma, right? Which we think of like the reddest of the red have moved towards understanding that for one, criminalization like doesn't necessarily work and like for two that there's some profit in this business and for three the fact that like the health concerns around like marijuana aren't that real right um, and that a lot of the criminalization around marijuana especially was just rooted in the fact of, of who was using it right in communities throughout the, the 80s and the 90s and in the early 2000s and so recently in Oregon right um, they passed measure 110 last November, which decriminalized possession of hard drugs, right? Methamphetamines, oxycodone, cocaine, heroin. Um, and a lot of people were like, what? Like, wait, wait, cocaine? Like, right? Because, and, and you gave this example of like alcohol, but it has become so normalized that it's just like, well, how could you compare alcohol to X drug, right? In many ways, like research shows that alcohol is, is more addictive than a lot of these other drugs is Oregon ahead of the game in this and like decriminalizing a lot of these drugs. And particularly, I think it's, it's good to know that they decriminalize possession, right? So it's not the entire scope, but like 
small amounts of possessing these things have been decriminalized. So it's not as though they decriminalized everything. But so is Oregon ahead of the game in this or are they tripping? I definitely believe that they are leading the way. And I'm fully confident that we are going to to really understand that as we get a couple years down the line in this policy. I saw so many people, I, I heard my public health professors talking about how ridiculous that they thought this was because drugs are bad, which we've already addressed. But no, what we're going to see, I am very sure less people overdosing because that they, they can get the resources and education and tools that they need and more people being able to take care of their overall health. So, you know, the only negative consequence of drug use is not just addiction or overdose, but there can be smaller issues like people who inject drugs can have issues with injecting and, and get like skin abscesses. Um, but because uh, what they're doing is illegal, they can put off taking care of that health need and have it turn into something big and, and harder to treat and worse for the health outcomes overall. So we're going to be seeing more people be able to take care of health needs like that, receiving health care in general, hopefully more trust in, in medical institutions because seeking care um, is not going to be a threat for incarceration. And also, this matters much less to me, but um, other states are going to see how much money Oregon saves by not incarcerating so many people. Because that is, it, it costs so much money to keep people locked away. And that money could be used, again, to be investing in healthcare, investing in housing, investing in communities. And I'm really excited to see what happens there. And really hopeful that once people realize it's not the end of the world, the other states start following them for sure. And, and I think that last point is like super crucial. And I think Oregon like wrote in the policy specifically that all of the money saved um, and like earned from decriminalizing possession of, the, of these drugs are particularly going into like rehabilitation and other like direct services uh, for people who, who, who use these drugs, right? And I think that's crucial. Like it does save quite a lot of money. It's so much more expensive to incarcerate somebody than it is to put them in, in rehabilitation or um, to offer some other services for them. But we have to ensure that that money being saved by the state and by these institutions is going into like prevention and education and not into, I don't know, more policing or, or, or something, you know, inherently harmful, right? And so last question for you, Sarah, do you see uh, prison industrial complex abolition as, as pivotal to this work in relation to to sex and sexual health in relation to the HIV epidemic in relation to drug use disorders and, and harm reduction? And if so, why and how? So yes, absolutely. Just because the conditions that are created just by like over-policing communities, by living under constant fear and stress of police interaction and arrest, and by being targeted um, for police harassment because you use drugs or because you are homeless or because you engage in sex work, or anything like that, all of those things contribute directly to people's vulnerability to contracting HIV and their inability to get treatment um, if they do have HIV. And, and that's just like one part of it. Incarceration in and of itself, uh, it just, it destabilizes people's lives so thoroughly. Um, it makes it so hard for them to be able to take care of their HIV and to take care of themselves. I could literally talk about this all day, but incarcerating people disrupts their HIV treatment. Prisons don't want to pay for the already horrifically expensive treatments. A lot of times they will put people on different regimens that are cheaper, but not as fit for them. The conditions of dehumanization 
and trauma that people just experience from being incarcerated, discourage people from being able to adhere to their medication. And like I said, medication is what keeps people being able to stay alive. But also when you stop taking your HIV medication and HIV starts being able to reproduce again, it can very easily become resistant to the medication that you're taking. And for something that you're living with, you know, forever, keeping your medication and treatment options open is really important so that you have other lines to fall back on if something stops working for you. And so when people are incarcerated and they get switched to other regimens or they have very inconsistent access to care or they don't get to control their care the way that they used to or they're not being fed the way that they need to be, all of these things contribute to disruptions in care and can lead to people developing drug resistances, which is obviously extremely counterproductive to not only their healthcare, but the epidemic overall. And that's not even to touch on release, the way that we set people up to fail when they are released. You know, people hopefully will get two to four weeks of their medication. That's not a lot for something that you need to be taking every single day. So you have this very small window to get back on your feet. If you lost your housing or your transportation or your employment or your kids or your insurance while you were incarcerated, you have a very small window to get those things back to be able to prioritize your HIV care. Because something like HIV for a lot of people is not like an immediate health need. If you're not medicated, it takes on average 10 years for there to be enough damage to your immune system for it to be an urgent need. And so when you're worrying right now about eating tonight or seeing your family again, or finding a place to sleep, right? Re-enrolling in Medicaid and reconnecting with your healthcare provider is gonna seem like a lot less important. And so the intentional ways that we set people up to fail within the system, the way that we set them up to suffer is counterproductive to ending the HIV epidemic in every way. So yeah, it's gonna take a lot of restructuring of a lot of things in our society to be able to fully end new HIV diagnoses, but this is 100%, I believe, one of those things that's going to have to change. Well, thank you so much, Sarah Rains, for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us today. It was, it was incredibly insightful, and uh, I hope a lot of people get something and learn as much as I have from you. So appreciate you, and stay woke. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically Podcast, brought to you by the Foundation for Liberating Minds. Learn more about the work of Foundation for Liberating Minds at our website, foundationforliberatingminds.org, our social media pages at Foundation4LM, and consider getting connected with the podcast and all our members by supporting this work through our Patreon, patreon.com slash foundation4LM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod wherever you're listening. Power, and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.